0: Good evening, Uh, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad you're here. Um, We're looking at the book of Genesis, uh, and the theme of Genesis, you could say, is uh, is summed up in verse 14, I'm just going to hold this thing. Uh, It says uh, in Greek, literally, uh, is is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? So some translations say difficult, but... um, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? He says that right into the teeth of Sarah's bitter laughter. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The book of Genesis is about this God who's so wonderful that uh, he creates this whole world of hospitality, uh, this, this new family that the king was just became a part of, a family that is supposed to be defined by hospitality and welcome. Right in the middle of this empire that is... Uh, filled with the opposite, with hostility uh, that is highly protected, uh, a fortress empire uh, where you don't let anybody in, <clears throat> of exclusion and xenophobia, and uh, get out of my space, get out of my country. You know, in, in, in that empire, God comes in, He's like, I'm going to create a community that is hospitable. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And what he's doing in this passage is he is welcoming Sarah and Abram into his, into his, into his world, into his lifestyle, into the kingdom lifestyle. And you see in the, you see in the way that Abraham uh, welcomes these three visitors, you see the hospitality already being generated by God. And then you also see after that story the way that, that God then welcomes Sarah into this, um, this hospitality by drawing her out of herself and into the story. Um, And finally, and I'm not going to get into this last part, I didn't have time, but you see the way that that affects uh, Abraham. Because Sarah just began to read that that part about how he he then begins to pray for his arch enemy, Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot had been captured. And they were basically trying to kill them. Uh, The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were trying to kill Lot and his family. But you see uh, Abraham pleading on their behalf, interceding with God for uh, these cities that that hate his people. And so you see the way that God is bringing Abraham into his own world, his own kingdom of intercession and hospitality. Um, In verse 17, God says, should we show him what we're up to? And the answer is yes. We want him to be a part of what we're doing. And, and you see him learning how to do that in this story of the welcome of the visitors. So those two things. First, the way that Abram welcomes the visitors. And then second, the way that God welcomes Sarah into his plan, into his story. So first of all, uh, we have to go back to Genesis 17. And um, we didn't preach that. Last week I preached on Genesis 15. But in Genesis 17... It was what Austin was talking about with the baptisms. God tells his people, I want you to circumcise all of your children and your male children. I want you to circumcise. And that circumcision will be a mark that they're part of the kingdom of God and not the empire. And so it's a sign of the covenant, we call it, which baptism replaced circumcision when Christ came as the new sign of the covenant. But this mark of circumcision was obviously more permanent than even a tattoo. You know, we might get a tattoo if you're a member of a gang or something like that. You would get a tattoo or, um, you know, maybe a scar. You cut yourself like a... Well, circumcision is way beyond that. It is a permanent mark. This child is a child of the kingdom. And in Colossians 2.11, Paul uses this very graphic, kind of almost cringeworthy phrase. He calls circumcision a stripping away of the flesh. A stripping away of the flesh. And um, the flesh is, throughout the Bible, the flesh is a metaphor for, you could say, the empire, or all that is hard-hearted and tight-fisted and closed off and shut down. And so circumcision is a way of creating a soft heart, stripping away the flesh, creating a soft heart. Um, A circumcised life would be like a house that is highly porous, you know, not a house where the shades are all drawn, the doors locked, Um, it's always the lights are off inside. This will be a house where the the windows are open, uh, the doors always open, the breezes are blowing through, the fans are going, the sun is shining in. That is what the life of of someone who is circumcised is supposed to look like. So that was back in chapter 17, where he circumcises his children. Now in in chapter 18, we see kind of the life of what a, a circumcised life would look like, this hospitality. So... Here's how the story goes, and you should try to picture the story. It's so, it's so, um, it's so graphic. It's, it, would be, it would make for a great scene in a movie. You have Abram sitting at the door of his tent by this little grove of trees, which I think this would be a great depiction of the Oaks of Mamre. We don't really know where that is exactly. Uh, these aren't oak trees. I don't think those might be oak. But anyway, it's like these, this beautiful little grove of oak trees in a very hot climate, You know, desert climate. And there's a little, gro- these are the oaks of Mamre. And then there's a, imagine a tent, and there's Abram in his tent, and he's looking out. And then, this is, by the way, this is the great nation that God promised him, right? Right. This is all that Abram can see right now of this great promise that God made him. I will make a, a great kingdom of you. I will make a nation of you. And right now, Abram's like, all I've got is the oaks of Mamre. That's all I've got. Not much at all. So he's sitting there. By the way, he's in pain, right? Because he just got circumcised. So chapter 70, he got circumcised, he's in pain. It's the heat of the day, he's sitting there in his tent. And then suddenly over the, the hill come the three mysterious visitors. And I picture them in long robes. Somebody today said men in black. Uh, I don't think that's not the image that I get at all. Um, somebody else mentioned the matrix, those. I don't, I don't know exactly, I would love to know what the three visitors looked like, but they, were, I, they had to be in robes with like a hood on and they come up over the hill. And the second that Abram sees the three visitors, uh, it says in verse 2, he, he ran. Okay, he's in pain. And in the ancient Near East, you didn't run if you were a great patriarch. If you were, a, uh, if, if you were a, the, the father of the household, you would never, you would never run. That was undignified. They, they wore these long robes. But here he is, Abram sees these three men... And he not only runs from the tent door, he bows himself. So he's running right after being circumcised. Now, one question you should be thinking to yourself is, was he aware that this was the Lord? Was he aware that this was the Lord? Just keep thinking about that question. Um, So he is bowing his face to the ground. This is clearly more than southern hospitality, right? This is a different level of hospitality than what the south is known for, which is, you know... I don't know, it's, it, it's not as sincere as this. It's not a, this is like aggressive, like a heat-seeking missile, you know, dialed-in pursuit is what this is. And of course, I'm going to tell you later, this is what you're called to do if you're members of the kingdom. This is what we're called to do. This is very challenging to us. Let a little water be brought. That's what um, Abram says. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. So he welcomes them into his trees and he says, uh, bring a little water to the servants and then wash your feet. That was customary in a place where they had a lot of dirty feet. They're walking around with sandals. And I picture Abram just gesturing wildly. I mean, he's obviously very amped up here. He's running again in verse 6. He ran quickly to the tent of Sarah and said, quick. Bake 60 pounds of the finest flour we have into, into cakes. Now Panera bakes 160 pounds of flour per day. This is 60 pounds of flour. That's a ton of flour. So he's got Sarah in there just baking like crazy. It's very expensive. I can't imagine asking my wife Margie uh, at a moment's notice to bake 60 pounds of flour. I don't think that would go well. It probably didn't go well for Abram either. But he's willing to do it because he's got to take care of these three visitors. And then it gets crazier in verse 7. He's running again. Just picture him like running from one place, you know, to the visitors, back to his tent, over to Sarah, back to the tent, over to now he's running again. And um, he says, he ran, took a calf, the best calf they had, tender and good, and he says to his butcher, prepare him quickly. So he's running to visitors. He's bowing to them. He's welcoming them. He's running to Sarah. He's running to the butcher. And then to top all that off, he won't even eat. He just stands there and he waits on the three visitors. Again, did he know who they were? He stood by them under the tent while they ate, verse 8. He's just standing there. This is a massive feast. This is a feast that Maybe once a year you would have a feast with a tender calf. But they killed the entire calf. They had to eat it all. There was no refrigeration. They had to eat it all right there. Probably brought in other people as well. Massive feast. Verse 8, he took the curds, the milk, and the calf, and he set it before them. So that is a major challenge to us. As members of the same kingdom, we are descendants of Abraham, if we're believers. And so we are called to hospitality that is like this. And we live in this world that's very cold. You know, I keep calling it the empire. Um, We see in the next chapter, in in chapter um, 19, when they go to Sodom and Gomorrah, the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is that they came to the town square and nobody welcomed them. Not only did they not welcome them in the town square, they said it's dangerous, you don't want to go to the town square. Same thing happened in the book of Judges hundreds of years later. That's one of the greatest problems in Israel is that they were not hospitable. They did not welcome people. That's when you know a society has really gone downhill when there's no more hospitality. And do we not live in a culture right now that is the opposite of hospitable? I mean, how many people are in each other's homes? How many people are in each other's homes? Neighbors? um, Even friends? Even people really nearby? I mean, how many people do you have in your home? Uh, We live in a Society where people a lot of the time are walking around like this. You know, I walk over in all the gardens a lot, around Haynes Park a lot, at Wake Forest a lot. People are just they're looking down. They wouldn't even it's real it's really radical to even say to someone, look them in the eye and say, Hey, how you doing? That's a really good that's a good practice. That's a good thing to put into practice tomorrow. You might feel really embarrassed by that. People drive into their garages a lot of times, a lot of suburban uh, housing developments, they have garages so that you can drive into your garage and then close the door and then go into your house. And thank goodness you don't have to go from the street into your home because, my goodness, you get caught in that 20 feet, that walk. So you go into your garage, close the door, never see your neighbor. You know, they say that today between 18 and 25 young people in that age range, 61% are seriously lonely. That's a crisis of hospitality. of people between the ages of 18 and 25 are very lonely. And part of the problem, church, is that we idolize the nuclear family. Frankly, that's a big part of the problem. Is that we're not a community that's porous enough to allow people to to come into families, that homes are very closed off, often closed off to single people. And a lot of families feel like, uh, once I'm married, I'm like there. And then when I have kids, I'm really there. And a lot of times, you know, I see people get married and they close a little bit and they have kids and they close a little bit more and pretty much nobody's getting in there for years once those kids come. And so especially if you're reaching that age where your kids are older, it is, this is a call to be hospitable, to welcome people in, to open your home. You know, marrying someone will not solve the problem of loneliness. The, the family does not solve, kids does not solve the problem of loneliness. We, we need to be in each other's homes so the question to ask yourself, how permeable is my dorm room or my apartment or my house? How permeable is that membrane? Do people come in and out? Do people come in and out that are not like me? Would someone come over who I don't really enjoy or who, are, who is hard to be with? Do I ever have anybody over that's hard to be with or even that I don't even really like? So this is a, this chapter... This story is a total repudiation of our self-enclosed empire that we live in. He's learning from God. Verse 19, I have chosen them so that they will keep my ways. I've chosen Abraham so that he will keep my ways and he will be hospitable like I am hospitable. And that's what we're about to see right now in the way that God welcomes Sarah. He's basically teaching them this is what hospitality is like. The way that he woos Sarah and welcomes her into the story. So. God has uh, already appeared to Abram before. This is not the first time he's appeared to Abram. But this is the first time... And by the way, I don't know the answer to the question that I kept asking. I don't know, I don't know if Abram knew that was the Lord or not. I think at some point he did. I don't know when he did. I don't think he did when he went and ran to those guys. Uh, I think he, he didn't... I, I don't even know what those guys were. Like, we don't know exactly... We know that it's the Lord. It's really interesting. In verse 9, it says, They said to him, Where is Sarah? But then in verse 10, it says, the Lord said, I will return. It's referring to the same person. They said, then the Lord said. And the Lord is capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. This is the uncreated, the almighty, the I am. So we're talking about this incarnate presence of God. This is a very He has come a long way to be with Abram. To reiterate this promise. And especially to tell Sarah about the promise. He's kind of told Abram already, but now he wants Sarah to be in on it. So verse 10, the three come down, the three and the one, and they, he, they say, uh, I will surely return. This is the three speaking again. Verse 10, I will surely return and Sarah will surely have a son. Surely return, surely have a son. There's no doubt about it. This is going to happen. I am absolutely going to make this happen. This promise that I've been promising you for so many years, that you've been waiting for so long of this child, I am going to make that happen. I'm going to make that happen. So the, um, the three begin to draw her out. Um, they, want, they want her to be a part of this. So in verse 9, they say to Abram, uh, where is your wife Sarah? And then Abram says, you know, back in the tent, after all that baking, she's resting in the tent, and then, obviously, God knows where Sarah is. He didn't ask them because he wanted to know where Sarah was. He asked them because he was inviting her in to the project, and he, you know, he knows, or the three know, they know, he knows um, that she is listening surreptitiously behind the behind the door. Verse ten: Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So God is communicating indirectly, knowing that God knows that a direct address right to Sarah would, would be too much for her, because she's afraid. She's probably afraid because she so much doubts God. There's a lot of bitter doubt in her heart. We'll see that in a second. But it says in verse 15, she was afraid. So God didn't directly address her. He, he addressed Abram about her. Where's your wife Sarah? He's, she's back in the tent. And then He's very careful in verse 10 to mention her by name. And this is just beautiful how God, he, he comes to every one of you individually. You know, He knows where you are. You know, he knows where you are in terms of hospitality. He knows how to push you just one more notch towards hospitable. He, he knows exactly how much fear there is in all of us. So he's dealing with Sarah right where she is. And so I love that he mentions her by name in verse 10. I will surely return. He's already said that. I will surely return, and Sarah, your wife, your wife, not Hagar, your servant. We're going to see that later, Abram goes to Hagar to try to fulfill the promise and sleeps with his servant Hagar to try to create the child of the promise. But the three say, I will surely return, and Sarah, your wife, she will have the son, not Hagar. And now, even when Sarah responds with bitterness here, um, even when, when Sarah... Was, and this is a very bitter... It's a very crude phrase in Hebrew. I wouldn't use the English words that she uses. But she says, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old... You can try to imagine the actual Hebrew words used. Hebrew is often very scatological and uh, and just rough. It's rough. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure again? Ha! Huh. It's like a bitter laugh. It's like a guffaw. So that's Sarah's response. To herself, she doesn't know that these three are listening. And then God replies with this very warm and very inviting question that is still known as indirect. It's indirect. He doesn't turn to Sarah and say, why did you laugh? What are you doing? Why are you laughing? He says to Abram, why did Sarah laugh? And I, I wish I could hear the way he said that. Why did why did Sarah laugh? And then Sarah gets nervous and she says in verse 15, I didn't laugh. She just flatly contradicts him, uh, completely lies. And then I I love this. This is the first time God has actually addressed Sarah directly. And he says, oh, but you did laugh. And I used to, um, when I would talk to my children, like um, one of my kids would You know, steal a cookie or something like that, or do something wrong. And I was like, Why did you steal that cookie? And they'd be like, I didn't steal that cookie. And I would say, Oh, but you did steal that cookie. (laughs) My favorite parenting lines. I highly recommend it. It's just, you just say, Oh, but you did. (laughs) And that's what God says to Sarah. It's like, it's not a guilt trip at all. It's like a mathematical statement of fact Oh, but you did. You did. And um, it's one of my favorite lines from God in scripture. Uh, and I would love to see the expression on God's face when he said that. But the reason he said that, the whole dialogue with Abram and Sarah here, is to welcome her into the story and say to her, is anything too wonderful for me, Sarah? You know, you're, you're laughing, you're bitter, you're hopeless. There is nothing that is too wonderful for me. And I love you. And I'm going to give you a child, and I don't care if you laugh. You know, have you ever felt that level of wonderful about god that god is that wonderful to the point where you're laughing and uh, you're laughing and crying at the same time because god is so wonderful to you that's what he wants that's where he wants you to get where that question is anything too wonderful for the lord and you say no nothing is too wonderful for the lord i know he can do it I have so much bitterness and doubt in my heart, so much anger in my heart, but there is nothing too wonderful for the Lord. When the child came in chapter 21, I love this part. When the child came, this has got to be so intentional by Moses, I mean, amazing writer. It says that Sarah laughed again. She laughed again. And this is chapter 21, verse six, but this was not a cold and cynical laugh. This was a completely different kind of laugh. This is, a, this is a wonderful laugh. This is a laughter that would be filled with tears and screaming. And she says in verse 6 of Genesis 21, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Will laugh with me. And I would love to see the, the expression on her face and the tears of joy. And she would take her little baby, laughter, right? Isaac means laughter. She would take him around to all of her neighbors and say, "Can you believe it?" At my age?" Isaac, laughter, just running her around the village to all the strangers. you know, "Is anything too wonderful for God? Do you see this?" You know God is welcoming her into the story. And just radical hospitality in the face of our unbelief. This week at the prayer meeting, uh, my wife compared it to uh, luring a wild dog into your into your home. You know, like just kind of a wild dog that's like going back and forth. You know, over the over maybe it takes it takes months to lure that dog. It, we're like the wild dog that God is trying to lure into His home, so He can love you and pick you up, and uh, and clean you and hold you and tame you. Um, we are invited to welcome people. Not only does God welcome us, then he calls us, come bring other people in. You know, it's like, it's like handing out $100 bills. It's, a, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Join me, be like me, and welcome people in. And that's what we see at this table. Uh, it's kind of an ugly table. It's a preview.